June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases. The time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that can enthrall you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped, like Amy Tintera's Listen for the Lie. With exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors, captivating sound design, and dynamic performances, Audible brings these stories to life like never before. And as a member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I am Navy veteran Phil Briggs, reporting for ConnectingVets.com. And today we're going to talk again with a repeat guest, former Lieutenant Colonel Brad Taylor, is a Special Forces veteran and a best-selling author. Brad's background is that he was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the U.S. Army Infantry and served for more than 21 years, retiring as a Special Forces Lieutenant Colonel, including eight years in 1st Special Forces Operational Detachment Delta, which we all know as Delta Force. And uh, there he commanded multiple troops, a squadron, and has conducted numerous operations in support of national interests in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other classified locations. Today we have you on, Brad, because we want some veteran voices on what's going on with this tragedy that we're seeing unfold in Israel with respect to the Israel-Hamas war, and it's causing death and destruction that, as it intensifies, strikes fear across the world And some of the players here, which we'll talk about today, including Hamas and Hezbollah, are frequently mentioned in the Pike Logan thriller series. With that, I just want to say welcome, Brad. Great to have you back on the show, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I don't know even where to start with this, because as we'd mentioned offline, you know, you could spend a college course, you could spend a decade even trying to unpack the history of this ancient land inhabited by Jews that are Israeli and Muslims that are Palestinian or Lebanese or, you know, all these different groups have been over there for thousands of years. Yet it seems to be this constant friction point where people are fighting over land, whether it's the Golan Heights, the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, the city of Jerusalem. They're all seemingly constantly fighting. 
And we've heard about these skirmishes over decades and that, you know, as part of Delta Force, you've got this global experience where you've worked and fought against terrorism across the planet. What happened recently to spark a new level of violence that we're seeing right now? There was no uh, single indicator. There was nothing that sparked any kind of violence. Hamas planned this for over a year to do this assault. Uh, they had planned on it for a long, long time, and they had they picked a time. Israel's going through a lot of turmoil right now. Uh, believe it or not, the state of Israel does not have a constitution. Uh, they said they were going to make one. They never got around to doing it. So they have a judiciary that basically becomes a constitution. So anything that happens, it goes to their Supreme Court, and they determine whether it should be done or not be done. But it's not based on, like ours is based on the Constitution. Does this follow the Constitution? They don't have one. Uh, and so the Supreme Court's got a lot of power. And uh, Bibi Netanyahu decided he didn't like the fact that the Supreme Court was telling him he couldn't do a lot of stuff. And so he said he was going to alter the Supreme Court and make it sub- subordinate, basically, to uh, the government, which caused a huge amount of protests, a lot of, I mean, thousands of people in the streets. So there was a fracture going on inside Israel that Hamas chose to exploit at this moment in time. Hmm, And that's fascinating because just a month ago on the news, I did see people protesting in the streets and it looked similar to what we see in our country at times. You know, there were people just protesting politics. And that's really all I thought was going on based on the video I saw, based on the news reports. I thought, oh, okay, well, people there, you know, they don't like one political party. So they're taken to the streets and they're arguing. Yeah, this one was pretty big. This was the biggest protest they've ever had. So it was it's not it wasn't uh, politics as usual. I'll tell you that. But Hamas itself, I mean, you, you don't have to go back you know, to the biblical times to figure out who they are. They basically in 1967, Egypt, Syria and Jordan attacked Israel. And uh, it's known as the Six Day War. Israel fought back. And during that time, uh, Egypt owned the Gaza Strip. Egypt owned the Sinai Peninsula. And when it was all said and done, Israel owned the Gaza Strip and Israel owned the Sinai Peninsula. Eventually, they uh, came to a peace accord with Egypt as the first country to recognize Israel. Israel gave back the... uh, Sinai Peninsula tried to give back the Gaza Strip, and Egypt said, we don't want it. You can have it. So uh, Israel occupied the Gaza Strip. Inside the Gaza Strip were a bunch of Palestinians, and uh, they formed uh, the Muslim Brotherhood was there, which Egypt does not like, which is why they did not want the Gaza Strip back. The Muslim Brotherhood then became Hamas, and Hamas was just dedicated to attacking Israel. Eventually, Israel said, okay, to get some uh, peace here, here's what we'll do. We're going to give the Gaza Strip back to the Palestinians to the Palestinian Authority. And they did that beginning in 1994. They gave the Strip back. They pulled all the settlers back. It was pure Palestinian land. And then in 2005, the uh, Gaza Strip held elections, and Hamas won the elections. So now a terrorist group owned the Gaza Strip. Once they won the elections, they said no more elections ever again, and they haven't had elections since then. And Hamas has then used the Gaza Strip as a platform to attack Israel. And that's basically where we are right now. So what we think of as like terrorists living sort of in an urban setting around villagers that may or may not even know they're there, you're saying, and history has shown that they actually elected Hamas over Fatah, the previous ruling party, and they freely elected Hamas. Did they know? Do you think the average Palestinian knew that no. Hamas's ethos was terrorism and death to Israel? Or did they just vote for him because Hamas's political party was saying, hey, we're going to give you what you like. We're going to turn the lights on. We're going to give you better electricity. We're going to give you lower taxes, you know, a chicken in no, every it was, pot. It was more of a protest vote against the Palestinian Authority. They did not like how the Palestinian Authority was running things. 
And so they said, you know, we'll put Hamas in there and see if they can do better. Um, it was more against the Palestinian Authority than it was for Hamas. Now, once Hamas got control, there were no more elections and they clamped down. They they owned the Gaza Strip at that point. So, the, I mean, you've got two competing interests in the Palestinian, the Palestinian population. You've got Palestinian Authority, which Abbas runs in the West Bank, and you've got Hamas. The Palestinian Authority works with the Israelis uh, to secure the West Bank. And uh, because of that, they're kind of known as the, you know, not to kind of the Uncle Tom of the Palestinian world there. You're not helping us out. And Hamas is just their whole reason for existence is to wipe out Israel. Now, the reason they did the assault was Israel. Uh, we had the accords with Egypt and we had accords with Jordan. And we just had the Abraham Accords where uh, Morocco, Bahrain, UAE all recognize Israel. Well, the biggest fish in the sea to get to recognize Israel is Saudi Arabia. And every time someone recognizes Israel, it goes against Hamas because Hamas wants to wipe Israel out. And, and they basically say that Israel shouldn't exist. Well, we're working with the uh, Israelis are working with the Saudi Arabians to to KSA, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, to recognize Israel. And Hamas can't allow that to happen. Neither can Iran. Now, Iran controls Hamas. Iran funds Hamas. And that would completely isolate Iran. So one of the biggest objectives of this was to uh, sever the peace accords with Saudi Arabia. And in that, they were successful. Saudi Arabia is now backed off. They're not going to do the peace accords, uh, at least in the near term. I think it'll happen in the future, but it's not going to happen anytime soon. So they got what they wanted out of that. So a terrorist organization becomes a political party, gets elected, and now their mission is to wipe Israel out and enter the news that we're watching. This horrific tragedy of two sides fighting and citizens caught in the middle. Um, wow. Just so sad. Uh, yeah, but don't make, other- make no mistake. What Hamas did was they're barbaric. I mean, it was it's not two sides fighting. There's not. There's not good people on both sides of this one. I mean, Hamas is a terrorist organization that burned people alive, beheaded people with hoes. I mean, it's that's all documented. And uh, the Israel has every right to defend themselves. They need to wipe Hamas off the map. Now, whether yes. they can or not, that's a whole different story. I mean, Gaza, the Gaza Strip itself is, the, I think it's a fourth dense, most densely populated area on Earth. It's more densely populated than Hong Kong. Uh, you're going to have a hard time uprooting Hamas. So the thing about insurgency, a uh, terrorist group or insurgents is they, they don't have the power of the state. They don't have aircraft. They don't have tanks. They don't have artillery. What they have is anonymity. They, you can't tell who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. And that's going to be the hardest part going into the Gaza Strip is when you're going house to house and Hamas is not letting anybody leave. All the border crossings are closed. So there's full of, it's a populated full of civilians. And most of the people inside Gaza Strip do not support Hamas. Um, but Israel is going to have to determine, is that a guy, a bad guy, or is that just a civilian? And that's where they get their power from. And you say the word insurgent, and I know the veteran community just ugh, cringes because as you just described, that is a the most difficult thing to root out because you can't see them. You can't tell who is good right. and who is bad just by seeing them on the street. Can they, they compare it to uh, Fallujah. Everybody keeps saying it's going to be like Fallujah. It's going to be like Fallujah. I'm, I, I fought in Fallujah. The uh, this is nothing like Fallujah. Uh, when we went into Fallujah, when the Marines, just the Marines that did it uh, for Phantom Fury, we had the help of the Sunni tribes there because Al Qaeda in Iraq had overstepped their bounds and were killing Muslims all over the place. And the Sunni tribes in the Al Anbar province got sick of that. It's known as the Awakening, and they knew who the bad guys were, and they helped us spot the bad guys. You're not going to get that in the Gaza Strip.
you mean the local Palestinian wouldn't be likely to point and say, oh, that house down the street, that's where they're staying? Right. They're right now. They're just hunkered down. They just want to be, you know, get me out of here. I don't want to be on either side of this thing. Hmm. Let's talk about another name that seems to pop up. And this is another connection I know you've made in your writing, in your books, and you've actually experienced in real life uh, serving in special forces and certainly with Delta Force. But let's talk about Hezbollah. Uh, I've heard about them from stories as related to their actions against U.S. forces in Iraq. But how are they based in Lebanon yet connected to Iran? Yeah, so Hezbollah, first of all, it was not Hezbollah in Iraq. There's a lot of competing names that people get confused. There's a group called Kitab Hezbollah, which is a militia in Iraq that's funded by Iran. Those are the guys that were doing the attacks against us, uh, not Hezbollah from Lebanon. But Hezbollah in Lebanon, basically, uh, Lebanon went through a horrific civil war from 75 all the way up to, you know, whenever, 1990. And during that civil war, the Shia were fighting the Sunnis, were fighting the Christians, were fighting the Druze. And the Shia uh, formed up the group. Hezbollah. It was part of the civil war. They're the ones that bombed our uh, barracks in 83. So that's where they got their big start. Now, Hezbollah uh, at that time was just focused on Lebanon. Well, the PLO was also in Lebanon and they were attacking Israel. Well, Israel invaded Lebanon to get rid of the PLO. And then Hezbollah said, we're going to get rid of Israel. And so they had this huge fight that went on forever. And eventually, I can't remember the year, I think it was 2002, they pulled, Israel pulled out of Lebanon. Hezbollah became the big champions. Look, they beat the you know Zionist Empire, and Hezbollah then ran for government as well. And they're an actual government. I mean, unlike Hamas, Hezbollah is in the parliament of Lebanon and a, a, a genuine political party. And they at one point owned the majority of the seats in the parliament. Now they have the the most seats in parliament, but they no longer have an outright majority. They lost like thirteen seats in the last election, but they still have about forty five percent of the Lebanese parliament is Hezbollah. And that's actually a good thing because it's a stopping point for them. They have constituents they have to think of. They can't lose power. If they get into a war right now, they had a war in 2006. They ran across the border, kidnapped a couple of Israeli soldiers. Israel invaded, complete devastation to Beirut. Uh, Everybody hated Hezbollah for doing that. It ended in a stalemate. Then everybody loved Hezbollah because they ground Israel down to a stalemate. But Hezbollah lost a lot of power there because it, it was just devastating to the average Lebanese civilian. Including the Shiite bloc that they're responsible for. And the Shiite bloc right now is like, we don't want another war. Don't get into a war. Don't cause a war right now. And that's causing a tamp down for Hezbollah. I mean, they got to look both ways. Do I get in a war? If I do, they're going to come in hard and it's going to affect how I do things. And some of the things Lebanon's gone through a economic crisis right now. They, they have a, a really short of funds. And last year, actually one year ago in October, of last year, they signed an accord with Israel to uh, mutually allow each other to extract gas off the shore of their respective countries. It was always a, a fight of who owned what there. And they signed a deal. And Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, said this was a tremendous victory for Lebanon. Well, if they go to war, that deal is off and Lebanon's going to be hurt even more. So that's something else that's kind of tamping down. We don't want to go to war. Now, that's not to say miscalculations will not occur. We just had this hospital strike that just happened yesterday. Um, something like that could cause the population of Lebanon to say, we want to go to war, we want to go to war, get rid of Israel. And Hezbollah at that point may be forced into going to war. A lot of people say that, you know, Iran's pulling the purse strings, or Iran is pulling the purse strings, but Iran can order them to do things. Iran can to a limited extent, but Hezbollah has their own 
existence to think of. They're not just a, a, a you know, a robot that Rand says, go attack. Okay, I will. They're still thinking about what they're doing. If they don't want to do it, they're not going to do it. Mm. But a similar vein that runs in both regions, whether it's Lebanon to the north or whether it's the Gaza Strip to the east of Israel, um, both these areas have sort of been hijacked by terrorists posing as political parties representing the people. That is just, wow. Well, I'd say Hezbollah itself is much more of a political party than Hamas. Hamas won the election and all they did was just keep attacking Israel. Hezbollah actually does stuff. I mean, they're in the government and they do, you know, hospitals and schools and things like that. A government, what makes a government function. They Mm. work with the Druze. They work with the Christians. They work with, uh, the Sunni bloc, they work with the uh, Alawites the, in this coalition government. They do government stuff, unlike Hamas, which is just Hamas. There is no government there. They just hit the iron fist in the Gaza Strip. So tragic to watch unfold. Uh, just to kind of end that real quick, you said that they're not just robots that do what Iran wants. In your experience, did we do something, I don't know, to, to sort of upset the balance there by doing the prisoner exchange with Iran. In other words, we got people that were being held in Iran back. They were Americans. We gave up, uh, we gave up Iranians that were being held in America. And there was a release of frozen assets to the tune of like $6 billion. I hear in the news, a lot of talk about how all that money is now just going to be funneled to this war. Is no. there a grain of truth to that, or is there logic? No, there's a lot of argument? misconceptions about that money. Uh, the money itself is it's it was frozen assets. First of all, it's not taxpayer dollars. I hear people say all the time, "We gave them six billion dollars of our tax money. Why aren't they going to build bridges?" Uh, it's not our money. It was basically when the Shah fell way back when, and the Ayatollah took over all our hostages. We froze their accounts all over the world. It was Shah's money. Uh, in fact, Iran sued us successfully because we had sold the uh, uh, Shah a bunch of F-16s and he had paid us for the F-16s, but we didn't deliver them because he fell. And uh, they sued us in international court and won to get their money back because they said, we bought a product and you didn't deliver. So give us our money back. Uh, So this was the Shah's money, but the way it was structured is the only way they could spend the money. uh, It wasn't Iran spending the money. It was uh, organizations that were doing humanitarian work inside Iran that could get the money. So far, not a dime of it's been spent. Now, there is a question of, you know, fungible assets in the sense that if Iran doesn't have to build that school and this other organization is going to build a school, then Iran has its money to fund terrorism. That's a true fact. I mean, six billion dollars is six billion dollars. If uh, the the other argument is that Iran wasn't going to build a school in the first place, so it's kind of irrelevant. Um, I don't have I'm not you know knowledgeable enough about Iran's internal uh, workings to know whether which one's true. But you, I could see both sides of the argument. Mm. Wow. Again, a sticky wicket. Uh, let's talk about capabilities. Uh, you know, you write in your books, even with some detail about characters that are inspired by Israeli defense forces. And um, Shoshana comes to mind from one of the books that I've read and uh, a yeah. couple other characters there. Uh, they seem to be an ultra capable military. Talk to me about the Israeli military capability. Yeah, they are extremely capable. The uh, um the thing that Israel has going for him, number one, is everybody has served in the military, including uh, you, you, there's a, a huge connection between all of them because they all have served in the military. But two, they they are constantly fighting. I mean, they're constantly working this problem set. 
And, you know, I hear uh, a lot of people on TV saying it. We've sent all our, you know, we've sent our, my old unit in. We've sent in all these units that are going to teach them how to do hostage rescue. Well, I hate to tell them, but the greatest hostage rescue ever done was Operation Thunderball and then Tebby. You know, that was Israel. They didn't, nobody taught them how to do that. They did it on their own. They have a huge capability that they can use. Um, but once again, the problem set is extremely, extremely hard. When we talk about the hostages, I honestly, I mean, it's sad to say, but I don't see those hostages coming out to a rescue. The, uh, it's not like in Tebby where they're all at the same airport. Uh, it's more like Lebanon where we had, we had, you know, upwards of 15 hostages in Lebanon through the years. And we tried mightily to find out where those guys were and rescue them. We never did. The only way they came back was either in a body bag or they were released. And in the past, uh, uh, Israel has done an enormous amount of work to get their guys released. So they, Hamas had a, a single soldier uh, as a prisoner, and they did a prisoner exchange, and, and Israel exchanged over 1,000 prisoners for that one guy. So they've, uh, Hamas has learned that, you know, we get some hostages and we can really make a deal here. What they didn't factor on was that rampage. Those guys just went nuts. And there's not going to be any exchange like that this time. In fact, one of the guys that was released for that single soldier is now the head of Hamas. Wow. So ugly when you look into the deeper layers of the situation. Can you unpack a little bit about how difficult it would be to get hostages back from Gaza? It is going to be damn near impossible. The uh, they're, They've probably dispersed them. There's 200 hostages. They've probably dispersed them throughout all of the area, uh, in tunnels, you know, 24th floor, wherever. The hardest thing is you've got to figure out where the hostages are. Where is this hostage? And uh, we don't have the fidelity to do that. We don't have the uh, intelligence. Uh, Israel's working mightily to find that intelligence, but it's going to be almost impossible to figure out. And you don't even know, you know, sometimes, so hostage is taken, just, I'm just a hypothetical, hostage is taken with his cell phone, goes into Gaza Strip. Now you've found that guy's cell phone. You've got a geolocation where that cell phone is. Well, okay, that's a geolocation of the cell phone. And you don't know if that cell phone's inside a room full of IEDs that you're going to go storm and everybody's going to die. Uh, it's just a very, very difficult problem set, especially given the population density that's inside Gaza, um, to do anything with. Uh, and Thunderball, they had to, the, they were lucky. It was an airport out by itself in Uganda. And believe it or not, who built the airport? Israelis built the airport. So they had the blueprints and everything else to help them do that. And they knew exactly where the hostages were. In this case, they're not stupid enough to put all 199 persons in, you know, in a soccer stadium waiting on the Israelis to come. They're spread throughout that whole area. And worst case scenario, they've now parceled them off to, to PIJ, to Palestinian Islamic Jihad and other groups now have much like happened to us in Afghanistan. When Taliban got Bo Bergdahl, they gave him to the Haqqani Network. Now we have to deal with the Haqqani Network. So it's it's an incredibly hard problem set. And, and the worst or the first thing they need is where are these people? And that's going to be the hardest thing to figure out. Uh, let's talk about another development uh, with respect to our involvement now. You know, we're supporting Israel with the U.S. carrier strike group there. Uh, in general, what's the purpose of that? And how big of a deal is it that we immediately deployed a full aircraft carrier strike group? That's a it's a big deal. And we actually, it's actually two carrier strike groups now. But uh, that whole point is aimed at Iran and Hezbollah. It's like, look, OK, these two guys are going to duke it out. Uh, and you're not going to get inside here. It's kind of like uh, um, 
two kids fighting on a playground and the teachers didn't tell all the other students, just stand back, let them go. Basically, we're telling Iran, if you get involved in this thing, we've got the capability to wipe you off the face of the earth. The only thing Iran cares about at the end of the day is their regime. And if their regime is threatened, they will not do anything. If they're Right now, they're saying, we had nothing to do with this. We had nothing to do with this. Why are they saying that? I mean, why aren't they cheering? Yay, yay, look what we caused. Look how we did this. They're doing that because they know we'd wipe them off the face of the earth. Um, and so that's what those two, those are strictly deterrents for Hezbollah and Iran. Don't you guys mess with this because we've got the firepower in here to do what we need to do. And its significance, how often in American history have we so quickly deployed a strike group like that? I mean, it seems like I saw the story on the weekend and then by, you know, Monday, the Navy had deployed one aircraft carrier strike group and then filled it in later that week with yet another one. I mean, has this occurred yeah. in military history in recent times? Yeah, it has. This uh, We didn't deploy the Ford to the Med. It was already there. There's always a carrier strike group in the Med. And so all it did was steam towards Israel. Now, the second carrier strike group was supposed to replace the Ford. Instead, they extended the Ford and the second carrier strike group just continued with the mission it already had. So now you have two in the Med. And what sort of assets are in a carrier strike group? I know this, but I want to ask it openly because I served on the Stennis. I was on a carrier as well. But what kind of assets are within a strike group that would lend assistance or could possibly help in this matter some way, somehow, more than just a show of force? So, I mean, well, you're the Navy guy, but I'll throw this out there. So, I mean, obviously, you've got, you know, the uh, F-18, the strike package itself, the airplanes that drop bombs. They also have hospital capabilities. They've got submarines, you know, with nuclear missiles, if it comes down to that. Uh, they've got the uh, uh, early warning radar systems that fly around. That's what they're probably using right now are all those radar systems. that The, the aircraft, that you can see them in, in pictures. They have a big dome on top of them that rotates around. Uh, I think it's called a Hawkeye. Those things are all used for intelligence collection for the strike group itself. And then you've got uh, the MUs out there as well now. We've got a MU that's in, in, in place, a Marine Expeditionary Unit. Now, that force is the ground component. They have the capability of doing whatever needs to be done. It's not that big. It's about 2,000 people, I think, uh, formed around an infantry battalion. So you've got about a one battalion. But they can do search and rescue. They can do noncombatant evacuation. They can do humanitarian assistance. They can do all kinds of stuff. So it gives a, it's a tailored package. It gives them flexibility. Now, the MU itself has got its own capabilities. It's self-contained. So it's got the ground components, got an air component, uh, Osprey tilt rotor to get people in and out. It's got uh, strike aircraft of itself that, that it owns. It has its own artillery. It has, it's a self-contained unit for fighting. Mm. And again, when you say MU, we're talking about the Marine Expeditionary Unit. Yeah. Wow. Standing by on all sides, and yet the conflict rages on. Um, what's the likelihood or historically uh, that U.S. forces get involved in something like this? It's the likelihood will it gets high if Iran comes into play. Uh, and the likelihood is very high if Iran comes into play. It's also high if there if Iran Iran has capabilities all over the world. We haven't seen the likes of going into war with Iran. Um, I mean, we fought in Iraq. There's there was a cross border border component with foreign fighters coming through Syria. That's Afghanistan, same way with the Pakistan Fatah area. But Iran owns people all over the world. Uh, they the PMUs we were just talking about in Iraq. They own them for sure. Uh, Al Assad just got attacked with some drones today. Uh, that's being directed by Iran. They're just starting to scatter things. And the they own Hezbollah. You know, if if Hezbollah goes to war in Lebanon. And it turns into a two-front war where Israel is literally threatened 
as for their existence, we're going to get involved in. Now, that's not saying that's going to happen, but uh, uh, that's about the only way we would get involved. If Iran did something overt, we would get involved. If uh, Israel was on the verge of destruction, we'd get involved. Other than that, we're, we're there just to help. Uh, as we wrap this conversation here um, and we talk about our U.S. foreign policy, you know, supporting Israel, uh, we talk about all the accords that have gone on throughout the various years where we try to normalize relations between an Arab nation and Israel. We try to make all these agreements and, and, and you know, it's been going on for decades. Does U.S. foreign policy affect the street level about how locals feel about their government? Well, Are it does for the just- Palestinians. Um, I mean, the uh, obviously we're supporting Israel because it's the only democracy in the Middle East. Uh, you know, everybody else over there is is some kind of autocracy or, or kingdom or something like that. But the foreign policy, basically, what we're trying to do with the accords is with UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, uh, Oman's in the play now. If you get everybody to recognize Israel as a state and then you have diplomatic relationships with them, you you get more peace. The problem with that is the Palestinians feel like they're being left behind. Uh, you know, so before everybody said, we're not going to do anything with Israel until Israel solves this Palestinian problem. Now you've got UAE, you've got Bahrain, you've got Morocco, who basically said, I recognize Israel. And the Palestinians are sitting there saying, well, wait a minute, I thought you were going to get some concessions out of this. We we're supposed to get something out of this, too. Uh, and they haven't. So we're in that sense. It's not I wouldn't say it's our foreign policy. We don't rule the world. I mean. It's UAE makes our own decisions. You know, Bahrain makes our own decisions. Israel makes their own decisions. We facilitate that and we encourage it. And so our foreign policy supports it, but our foreign policy is not causing it. But because of that, Iran has what they call the axis of resistance, which is Hamas. It's a uh, uh, PIJ. It's Hezbollah. It's all the, the PMUs inside Iraq and um, Qatab Hezbollah, which is in Syria as well. Um they are running all those guys and and they use they have a huge information operation they have a cuds force that goes around to the palestinian people and you know the, this hospital strike that happened yesterday it looks like pij fired a rocket that misfired and fell into the hospital well immediately everybody blamed israel and there was a huge uh information campaign that went out well Iran's funding all that they they don't want israel to be the good guys here they want israel to be the bad guys so a lot of this is in the information realm of of who are you going to believe in the first place? So when we talk about the United States foreign policy, if you were an alien looking at it, you could say one thing. But if you're a Palestinian looking at it, you say, oh, those guys are evil. Uh, but it's not, you know, it doesn't make it true. Is there any likelihood for a two-state solution, meaning Israel can coexist next to Gaza while Hamas is in power? No, there's absolutely no... that. Hamas has got to go. Uh, now, whether the, the uh, Palestinian Authority takes over is another question, because the younger generation considers the Palestinian Authority to be corrupt, which, in fact, they are incredibly corrupt. Uh, they don't trust them. They don't think they're any good. Right now, there's absolutely no way to do a two-state solution, basically because the government of Israel has, has gone really far right, and they don't want a two-state solution. Um, so that you have to have two parties that want to do this before you can ever do it. The good thing, not a good thing, but usually these conflicts like this end up causing shakeups in the international order of things. For instance, uh, the Yom Kippur War in 73, once again, Egypt and Syria attacked Israel. And once again, Israel was almost annihilated and then Israel fought back. 
Well, at the end of that war, that's what caused the uh, Camp David Accords for Egypt to recognize Israel. Israel gave back the Sinai Peninsula. Egypt recognized them. That would not have happened if it hadn't been for the Yom Kippur War. So at the end of this fight, I don't know how it's going to end up. It could just be a debacle. Who knows? Um, but I would not be surprised if somebody, you know, Hamas gets eradicated. They're no longer in charge of the Gaza Strip. And they decide we've got to do something about this. Let's take another look at this two-state solution because we can't continue existing like this. I don't know if that'll happen. I, I know that the government that's in play in Israel right now does not want that, and they want to own the entire West Bank. They don't care about any kind of state for the Palestinians. So that it would take it takes you know two sides to broker peace, basically. Uh, as we end this conversation, uh, I always like to look back and. I'm wondering, is there something we should learn from history as it relates to this situation? And you've mentioned historical facts throughout this interview, but is there is there a takeaway? Is there something in history that we hope to see repeated? Is there something in history that yeah, we can I, learn actually, from? I, I think I yeah, I just what I just said, I think is what uh, what you can learn from history is out of the worst outcomes uh, or out of the worst wars sometimes come the best outcomes. I mean Japan's a good example. I mean, Japan attacked us on Pearl Harbor. Uh, we went to war. We had World War II, bazillions of people dead. And then uh, we don't turn into an imperial you know, owner of Japan. Next thing you know, in the 70s, Japan, everybody's worried about him owning the world. They had all the cars. You had Sony. You had all this other stuff. They became a huge economic powerhouse and are a huge ally of ours now against North Korea, for instance. So sometimes there's a silver lining to the horrific things that occur. And I hope that that would be the silver lining here, just much like uh, Egypt recognized. Egypt was the first domino to fall when they recognized Israel. Then Jordan followed. And now we have the Abraham Accords and that kind of stuff. That all came about because of the horrific Yom Kippur War. Well, thank you for giving me a lesson. So many lessons in this interview. Uh learned quite a lot. And most certainly thank you for your service with respect to everything that You've done as part of Delta Force. Uh, you know, you've, you've, you faced off against terrorism. And even though we are not directly involved at this point on the ground, like, they, like we were in Afghanistan and, and Iraq for all those many years, um, you know, we're witnessing war and it takes a veteran, I think, with your deep understanding of the geopolitical world we're living in to help sort of unpack it and help it make a little bit more sense. So with that, best-selling author Brad Taylor, Special Forces veteran Brad Taylor, uh, I just can't thank you enough for coming on the show and uh, helping me helping me learn a little bit more about this uncomfortable situation we're witnessing. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I hope I, I, hope I helped out and didn't just make a mess of it. <laughs> it did. It's definitely going to be one that we should rewind and listen to parts of it again because there were a lot of facts. But uh, hey, as we depart here, tell me real quick. I know we got an interview on the horizon coming out in early 2024. What is the next book? And wow, it's also based on real world events going on right now. Tell me a little bit about the forthcoming book. Yeah, it's uh, it's called The Dead Man's Hand, and it's uh, uh, basically based in Ukraine with the Ukrainian element. Well, it's not. It's about Ukraine. It's not based in Ukraine. It's based in Nordic states uh, about uh, a group of Ukrainians called the Wolves who are trying to assassinate Putin. Always on the cutting edge of current events. And these action-packed thrillers, again, are the Pike Logan series by Special Forces veteran author Brad Taylor. Look forward to getting to that. And uh, we'll have you back on. When does the book come out? Uh, January 23rd is the launch date. 
All right, man. Well, then I'll see you in the new year and uh, stand by because I'm bound to have more questions in the next three months. Sure. So uh, look forward to calling you again, Brad. My pleasure. I'll do it anytime. Now, just before we published this show, I came across a Facebook post from Brad, which was recorded shortly after the Hamas attack on Israel. Brad and his wife were discussing the situation. And at the end, he offered an educated opinion on whether or not this war will spread across the region and eventually become a bigger, even global war. Could this ultimately end up being a larger, a much larger regional conflict involving Syria? You're asking me as my wife? I'm asking you as a interested <laughs> citizen. <laughs> yes, if Syria right now is, is uh, uh, completely destroyed and under the sway of various duchies of, of uh, ISIS and, and various other uh, organizations, Syria has their one little area that they own and the rest of Syria is just a mess. There's not a, a group of people who can take out Israel. It just as Saudi Arabia could take out Israel. Iran could take out Israel. Hamas, Hezbollah, all these other uh, sub-state organizations, they're not going to take out Israel. Uh, it would be a fight, and it would draw in, uh, as my wife just asked, uh, it would draw in regional powers. If uh, um, Syria, who is beholden to Iran, said, hey, I need some help here. I want, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to take out Israel, but I need your help. Iran has to make a commitment at that point. There's two choices there. I, I, I can help fight, get rid of Israel, but the downside of that is I lose my country because we're going to come in. Canada's going to come in. I mean, everybody's going to come in because Hamas did this. There's no uh, um, legitimate reason for what Hamas did. And it gives us a legitimate reason to go to war. I think that Iran's going to back off. I don't think Syria's going to go in. I think Hezbollah is going to sit there and go, yeah, 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 way to go. I ain't stepping in. And that's where we'll leave it for this week. Now you can find all CBS Eye on Veterans episodes, as well as more coverage about the issues important to the veteran community at ConnectingVets.com. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs, and I'll be back again next week with more great veteran stories right here on CBS Eye on Veterans. Hey, everybody, John Stewart here. I am here to tell you about my new podcast, The Weekly Show. It's going to be coming out every Thursday. So exciting. You'll, you'll be saying to yourself, T-G-I-T. Thank God it's Thursday. We're going to be talking about all the things that hopefully obsess you in the same way that they obsess me. The election, economics, earnings calls. What are they talking about on these earnings calls? We're going to be talking about ingredient to bread ratio on sandwiches. And I know that I listed that fourth, but... In importance, it's probably second. I know you have a lot of options as far as podcasts go, but how many of them come out on Thursday? I mean, talk about innovative. Listen to The Weekly Show with Jon Stewart wherever you get your podcasts.
Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.